Well, again, for all newcomers here and returnees, a very warm welcome. Welcome back. Welcome back to this wee ancient Scottish town of golf and gown and guest houses and endless coffee shops. Lindsay Cuthbert, who was with us and left recently, had calculated that there are about 86 coffee shops in and around St Andrews, if you include the pubs and the hotels. So you may or you may not get a good degree in the next few years, but you will leave twitching considerably more than when you arrived. We don't know how many coffee shops or the equivalent there were in the ancient city of Antioch in Syria, the story that we've just read with Becky. But what we do know from Luke is that around AD 45 to 46, filling the public airways of the town was a lively debate about a disturbing new phenomenon, a rise of a movement dubbed the Christianoi, the Christians. The residents of ancient Antioch were hardly strangers to new ideas, but somehow this movement was different. Antioch was one of the great bustling cities of the ancient world, familiar with a continuous flow of people and beliefs. It had its own games, it had a thriving building program, it was known as Antioch the Beautiful because of its boulevards and its walkways. It was a key centre for diplomatic relations, it was a meeting point for many nations and cultures and ideas. And yet even so, with all that cosmopolitan life, this group, first called Christians in this town, were causing quite a stir. And the reason was that this group was not just another interest group. For example, Jews who had decided to make Jesus of Nazareth central, the followers of the way or even Greek-speaking Jews with the same central conviction. But this group was a sort of, well, third race. A socially diverse, barrier-breaking, international community of both Jew and Gentile, slave and aristocrat, whose only uniting force was the claim that Jesus of Nazareth, put to death on a cross, was alive and was indeed the Messiah, the Christ, hence the nickname Christians. And it wasn't, of course, just the locals who were puzzled. The mother church, the Jewish Christian believers in Jerusalem, were also unsure So much so that they send down a one-man commission, brilliant choice, in the form of Barnabas, to check out what was going on. But as well as this unusually 
diverse grouping. There was something particular about this group called the Christians that was causing a stir. And this is what I want us to focus on for our few minutes this morning. In this wonderful cosmopolitan town, as consumerist and as me-centred as our own culture, where you chose your own God, Greek or Roman or Syrian or mystery religion, where you chose your own lifestyle and you chose who you would associate with or not, here were a group who had an unusual grace and generosity and outward focus. They had open hearts and open hands in a way that was almost unknown in the ancient world. They had a hospitable spirit. They had a compassion for the downtrodden. They had a self-giving attitude. And as a result, many people were turning to explore and then to follow the Lord who they were worshipping. And so I want us to take some time this morning just to look again at this church. A familiar story to many of us, it was not too long ago that we actually looked at this passage in a different context. And we do so, for those who are visiting, at the end of a short series we've been following entitled Making Friends, Making Disciples. But also this story this morning serves very much to set the scene for what God is calling us to this autumn and beyond. For the church at Antioch had discovered something of huge importance. That when we meet Jesus of Nazareth, He not only calls us to confess our need and our sin and to trust him. He not only wonderfully forgives us and he gives us power to live a new life. Not only does he fill us with great joy, but he radically reorientates our lives. Jesus spins us around. He turns us outwards. No longer are we curved in on ourselves, focused on what suits me and what pleases me and what makes me comfortable and happy. But such is the grace of God that comes into our lives when we meet Jesus, as Barnabas saw, that we delight to turn outwards to face the face of God and through him to face the world who he loves. One writer calls this formation, he calls it other-centred self. And this is true biblical conversion. Not just a turning to Christ in repentance but a turning from our attention-seeking egos to serving others. And it's this extraordinary movement of grace and generosity that took Antioch by storm. 
Just think for a moment of some of the characters who met Jesus recorded in the Gospels. Think of Zacchaeus. Think of the Samaritan woman who we thought about two weeks ago. Think of the encounter between Jesus and the deranged, demon-possessed man we thought about last week. And as you think about these stories, in every case, as they allowed Christ to touch their lives, they became radically reorientated. Zacchaeus became the local philanthropist. The Samaritan woman rushed back to her village, no longer caring about her reputation, just wanting to tell her neighbours who she had met, and the man from the Gerasenes, exactly the same. Recently, I read the account of the father of a pioneer missionary who some of you will have heard of, called C.T. Studd. Charles Studd was a famous Cambridge and England uh, cricketer. He and a group of Cambridge graduates known as the Cambridge Seven went out to China in the early days of the China Inland Mission. Later on, C.T. Studd went as a missionary to Africa. And here's a wonderful archival photograph of C.T. Studd. His father, Edward, was a wealthy man who had made his fortune in the indigo plantations of North India. And he lived a privileged and utterly self-indulgent life. He had a Wiltshire country home. He had household servants. He had his own stables. He had a passion for hunting and racing and gambling. One day, a friend refused to go with him to the betting shop and described that he had met Jesus and had become a Christian. And within a few days, he took a rather reluctant Edward to a big meeting going on nearby by the famous American evangelist D.L. Moody. A short time later, Edward Studd opened his life to Jesus Christ. And what was remarkable in reading his life was the way his life immediately became reorientated. He only actually lived two years after he became a Christian and he died in an accident helping somebody. And at his funeral, it was said of Edward Studd, the father of C.T. Studd, that in those two short years as a Christian, he had done far more than most do in 20 years in serving others, in offering generous gifts to those in need and sharing the gospel. He indirectly led his son, C.T. Studd, to Christ. For me, the highlight of this passage in Acts 11 is what Barnabas saw when he came to this church. If you have your Bible open, look again at verse 23, and it's there on the screen. When he arrived, and he saw what the grace of God had done. 
he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He saw an explosion of grace. He saw what the grace of God had done. So what had it done? Well, Luke tells us here. And in each case, it is an aspect of this radical reorientation that Jesus Christ brings. And first, there was a genuine heart for others without Christ. If you look back to verse 19, to the first verse Becky read, Luke informs us how this church was first planted. After Stephen's martyrdom, there was a huge crackdown on the church in Jerusalem, and many had fled. And whole waves of ordinary believers had moved north into Syria, the reverse scenes of what we see today. And as they crossed the borders, they shared Jesus with fellow Jews. But other migrants, Luke tells us, from Cyprus and North Africa, somehow sensed that this was a critical moment in the mystery and purposes of God. And just as the Spirit of God had showed the Apostle Peter through Cornelius' conversion, recorded in the previous chapter, that God had no favourites, somehow, and we're not sure how, this group of migrants became convinced of exactly the same thing. And they began to share Jesus with non-Jews, with Greeks, with Gentiles. They just seen to catch the moment. And a huge number of locals, verse 21, in Antioch, came to faith. This lovely phrase, the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. And what challenges me is that though this church grew so quickly, they did not settle down and become content. The passion of those first anonymous evangelists somehow becomes infectious. Barnabas joins them, Luke tells us. He encourages them. And there is another wave of growth. Look at verse 24. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people, repeat of the phrase, were brought to the Lord. And he, in turn, looked for help because the numbers were unmanageable. He remembered this remarkably gifted young convert uh, called Saul. And again, verse 26, great numbers of people were taught by them both. Here was a church for others, precisely because it was made up of converts who had been radically reorientated over the last 60 years. There has been extensive archaeological excavations in and around ancient Antioch, modern Antakya in, north, in southeast Turkey. And this has included the unearthing of a series of remarkable mosaics 
that give a very clear impression of life in the Greco-Roman world, as clear as anywhere, perhaps, uh, except for Pompeii. And from these mosaics, for example, we know what an immoral city Antioch was. We know it was awash with religious cults and magic charms. Written in the mosaics are all sorts of revealing words, words like power, renewal, pleasure, salvation. Clearly, this was a community desperately searching for truth, just as ours is. And this outward-facing church grasped the opportunity. And second, here's the picture of the mosaics. And second, this experience of grace resulted in an openness to people who were very different. In Luke's telling of the history of the early church, Acts 10 and 11 form a watershed moment. Here, for the first time, as we've already said, the gospel comes to non-Jews. First to Cornelius' household and now to this church. It had an international leadership from three continents, recorded in Acts chapter 13. It was a truly multiracial congregation. They really did not have a word to describe themselves, and so it was rather fortunate that town folk gave them this nickname, those devoted to the Messiah, to Christ, Christians. One of the people who has most influenced my life, I guess, has been a man called Bruce Mill, who some of you know. A Dundonian originally, a tutor, a friend. When he was pastoring First Baptist Church Vancouver, he once invited the mayor of Vancouver to a service. And afterwards he turned to the mayor of Vancouver and he said... Where else in Vancouver will you find today such a racially and socially mixed group of people who meet each other regularly and who love each other as they do? And he wrote about his congregation like this. On any given Sunday, writes Bruce Milne, I would witness a struggling Chinese engineer Handling a, service, handing a service sheet to a recently arrived Colombian economics professor exiled from his work with Colombian indigenous people. Both would stumble through the English hymns along with an Iranian telecommunications specialist who sits beside an unemployed French-Canadian warehouse worker. As Japanese exchange student and a Korean teenager greet each other and together they sit beside a Mennonite elder who is a recent widower. And so, he says, I could go on. And such openness to difference is something that is not natural. It is the evidence of the grace of God that Barnabas saw. And it is not natural because it comes with a cost. We all like things to be done 
our way. And it will never happen, this sort of community, unless the grace of God has turned our lives around so that we are facing others. Jesus said these famous words, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will find it. And finally, this church showed the evidence of the grace of God in a remarkable compassion for the poor. Around this time, Luke tells us, a prophet called Agabus arrives from Jerusalem and predicts a massive humanitarian crisis across the whole Roman Empire. And from other sources, we know that in AD 45, in Egypt, the breadbasket of the region, there was a terrible drought with a disastrous knock-on effect particularly in Judea. And look at the church's response. These young believers, many of whom were probably poor themselves, did not wait till disaster struck. Verse 29, the disciples, as each was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. They did this by sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Their response was not, well, let's just wait and see if this guy is some wacky, wacky uh, prophet who we don't really trust. They didn't say, let's first stockpile for ourselves, and then if we've got anything left over, we perhaps could give to others. It was rather the humility of saying, we have heard God. And so we are determined to help those who are probably going to be far worse off than we are. Here was a truly other-orientated people by the grace of God. And of course it foreshadowed a much more prominent collection of the poor later on in Paul's missionary career. And was the sort of compassion that became the hallmark of the earliest Christians. Just reflect on these words from Aristides, the second century Athenian philosopher and Christian apologist. Here he is talking to Emperor Hadrian, trying to defend the early Christians. And look what he says. He defines their lifestyle in this way. They never fail to help widows. They save orphans from those who would hurt them. If they have something, they give freely to the man who has nothing. If they see a stranger, they take him home and are as happy as though he were a real brother. Is that how people would define us as Christians today? Is that how we would defend ourselves in 21st century Scotland? So what is God's word to us this morning? For sure, as individuals, we need to be passionate about passing on the gospel. We need to be more effective, engaging as Christians in the Christian union. 
But there has to be something going on in our lives that is deeper than a few simple reminders that we need to share the gospel. There has to be, as Angus so powerfully said last week, such an encounter with the risen Christ that not only are our hearts filled with his love, but our minds and our wills are radically turned around from living for ourselves to living every day, every moment for Jesus and the world for which he died. To be in Christ does not mean that we neglect ourselves, but it does mean That our egos have been crucified with Christ. And we now share his risen, compassionate, joy-filled, sacrificial, cross-shaped life. Surely the delight of this church in Antioch was that their evangelism was so spontaneous. And it was spontaneous... Because they had been set free. They had been set free by Jesus. Set free from having to please themselves in a consumerist and me-centered culture. They were set free by an explosion of the grace of God through an encounter with Jesus Christ. What would it look like for us To have an explosion of God's grace in our midst. It would affect our worship. It would affect our prayer life. It would affect our priorities. It would affect our conversations. It would affect our deacons and our elders meetings. And the amount of risk taking we would attempt. It would change something as simple as where I sit in church on a Sunday morning. Who here needs my encouragement and my companionship this morning? And it would change something as big as seeing all my income, all my energy, all my employment, all my study in St. Andrews available. For God to use as I serve him and serve others. It would affect every ministry in the church. How can we reflect the life of Jesus who has spun us around so that now we are looking outwards? When Barnabas arrived and he saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad. And he encouraged them, as I do for you, to remain true to the Lord.